one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I thought you two were the cherry tomato boys. Oh yeah? Yeah. Yeah. You want a cherry tomato? Open up. <laughs> Open wide, huh? Separate those teeth. You want it? Yeah, come on. You want it? Open your teeth and eat it. Open it. You're going to get a cherry tomato. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding TV, a podcast about television. I'm David Chen, and it doesn't matter whether it's Loki or Star Wars or Nathan Fielder. If you put it between two slices of Patrick and David Chen, it's going to make for an interesting podcast. Oh, my God. <laughs> Joining, <laughs> Joining me today is Patrick Klepek. I, I don't know if I can acknowledge the last 30 seconds. I'm Patrick Klepek, who the, for lunch had a, a salad and refused to put a cherry tomato on it. <laughs> All right. Those are uh, references to the fact that today on the podcast, we're going to be discussing the new Nathan Fielder Benny Safety show available right now on Paramount Plus slash Showtime. It's called The Curse. We are going to be discussing the first episode of The Curse right here on Decoding TV. We're going to actually be giving our overall thoughts on the show and then diving into a beat by beat recap and review of the episode. And also, I do want to mention that The Curse is. Uh, the show that we plan to cover week to week until its season finale in January of 2024. So um, that is one of the shows that we're going to be covering right here on Decoding TV. Of course, there's also other shows that we're going to plan to cover here on Decoding TV, including shows like Invincible Season 2, as well as Murder at the End of the World. And there's other things that we're talking about covering. Of course, we're always interested in learning what you want to hear us talk about. Uh, feel free to comment at decodingtv.com or email us at decodingtv at gmail.com. You can also find us across all platforms, including Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube, where we're broadcasting live right now at Decoding TV. So I think that covers the whole preamble, Patrick Lepic. Um, uh, you know, I was unsure of whether or not this would be a good show to discuss week to week. But after having seen the first episode, I think that some interesting things are going to happen. In the show that will be <laughs> that will be worth reacting to on a week by week basis. Um, so, the curse is a show that's been created by Nathan Fielder of Nathan for You and Benny Safdie. It also stars Emma Stone. Uh, this is some incredible talent behind the show, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more in depth about what the show is about. But it's basically Emma Stone and Nathan Fielder play a husband and wife that are making a reality HGTV style TV show. Uh, about their efforts at rejuvenating a town in New Mexico called Española via the process of uh, making new houses, flipping houses, and so forth. That's the kind of premise of the show. And it, it's like the show, The Curse, is about the making of another show within the show, right? Uh, so, Patrick Klepek, let's start by talking about our overall thoughts on the first episode. Uh, no spoilers yet. What did you think of the first episode of The Curse, Land of Enchantment? Well, I was certainly enchanted. Um, a show impossible to look away from. Uh, I am deeply familiar with 
other people talking about Nathan Fielder's comedy, but I am not all that personally familiar with it. And so it's interesting to come to this show because it's the first time it's like, I know people love Nathan for you. And I know people loved the rehearsal and I've both those shows are on a bucket list of shameful things. I have not watched knowing that I would enjoy them. And so it's fascinating to come to the curse with this really different format, Nathan Fielder, capital A acting um, in, in, in a way and, or is it in, in a different sense than, than we've seen him do before. Um, and it's kind of my first massive exposure to his style of I don't, uncomfortable comedy, like uh, awkwardness uh, to, to learn things about the human condition uh, seems to be a huge part of the work that he has done in previous years and is carried through here in the curse. And I had a time with it. It is just, it is so, it's funny that you say before in the setup to this, well, there'll be things to talk about. It was an interesting show because that's true. I don't know. Like I, the, the pilot is very good. I had a very good time in terms of the word good is we'll unpack it. What does like good mean? What are feelings that you are having as you, as you watch a show um, where it's going, where it'll land. I frankly have, no idea. You could tell me this turns into a supernatural story by the end of it. And yeah, sure. Like they're haunted by ghosts at the end. Yeah. Like this, Why not? There is a real curse and there are zombies and like they have to escape Espanola. Um, or uh, it could be this kind of tightly wound, taut sort of dramatic thriller about a relationship, a very strange relationship uh, go and like us witnessing it crumbling or whatever. Like we'll, we're going to witness a relationship and wherever that goes, we're going to go with it. And so these performances across the board are impossible to look away from. I think that's, I've never spent so much time looking at faces. I, I'm just spending so much time looking at Nathan Fielder's face and Emma Stone's face. And often it feels like they're on a face off. Like who can do more mm-hmm. with their faces from scene to scene in a way that I, I, I just found it's it's tremendous. It's a really interesting swing of a show with really interesting characters that you absolutely, by the end, cannot put your finger on. They feel very slippery in terms of who are they? What are they doing? Why are they here? Why are any of these people here? Why are you all still in a room together? Like, those are the questions I have going forward. And I'm like <laughs> d- deeply upset about conceiving what might be along the way towards wherever this ends up. Mm-hmm. But at the very least, I think it's going to be enthralling. And that's what you want from this era of television where you could be watching anything. And frequently, especially for a lot of the franchise stuff, it's like, ah, I don't think you're doing enough to justify why I'm here. And I don't, th- we might have different complaints about this show by the end, I don't think that will be one of them. Uh, and that makes me really interested and excited to see, like, why did this happen? Like, what story are they going to tell in a television format? You know, yeah. And I, I don't know, and I'm very excited to find out. I had a great time with the first episode of the show. And when I say great time, I mean uh, my soul <laughs> almost left my body. I almost died. Watching it, uh, I almost cringe. Like I felt parts of myself cringe inwardly until it almost collapsed on itself. Uh, I have been a huge fan of Nathan Fielder for a really long time. I've you know loved every episode of Nathan for You. I thought one of the great things about Nathan for You is he makes you question the nature of your reality 
And um, what I mean by that is there are certain episodes that he did for Nathan For You where he's always testing the limits of what is what is actually real and what is not. Um, because a lot of Nathan For You is kind of a mockumentary, but there's he's interacting with real people and real businesses. And so there's always these questions of like, to what extent are these people in on it? Do they know anything about it? Are they actors? You're always having that question when watching Nathan For You. Same, similarly, when watching his other show on uh, Max, the rehearsal, like very same dynamic of like, what is it that's being presented to us? What is real and what is not? Meanwhile, the Safdie brothers have had a kineticism to their work that's really very intriguing. You know, I had a great time with this sh- movie called Good Time. I don't think you've seen that movie, right? Uh, Robert Pattinson. No, that's the Robert Pattinson, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah Highly enjoyable life. and intense and very stressful. Similarly, Uncut Gems, a big breakout movie for them. Um, also, same thing. So these aren't two people who, like, would immediately – it would occur to me that they their skills should be combined. You know, like – they felt like they worked in very different milieus to me. Uh, but lo and behold, the the curse has been birthed. And uh, so far, it's extremely intriguing. It's painful to watch. Uh, and I think there's just going to be yeah many moments where we're going to want to gather together here on Decoding TV <laughs> podcast to just talk about what we just witnessed. So... And I do want to encourage you, by the way, uh, be sure to subscribe to the podcast at podcast.decodingtv.com if you haven't already, uh, and you will get all the audio goodness delivered straight to your ears uh, and all the stuff that we'll be covering on Decoding TV. So those are some overall thoughts on uh, the first episode of The Curse, and you know, in the next weeks to come, we'll be covering it week by week. Uh, one last thing, logistically, uh, I think in the future weeks, like, our episodes will come out more quickly than they have this past week for the first episode. Um, especially if you're a DecodingTV.com subscriber, you should expect to get the episode of our recap shortly after the show episode comes out on Paramount Plus and, and Showtime. So look forward to that. Uh, but yeah, those are our overall thoughts on The Curse Episode 1. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. All right, Patrick Klepek. Let's talk about uh, what actually happens in The Curse Episode 1, Land of Enchantment. We're going to spoil the whole episode from this point forward. The curse opens with Asher and Whitney, played by Nathan Fielder and Emma Stone, respectively, interviewing a man struggling to find work and pay for his mother's cancer treatments. 
The interview is part of a reality show the pair are working on set in the town of Española about creating climate-friendly homes and aiding local residents. They reveal that a coffee store is offering the man a job. But the show's producer, Dougie, played by Benny Safdie, isn't happy with the lack of an emotional response by the man's mother. So Dougie fetches water to splash on her face to generate fake tears while Asher and Whitney look on. Dougie claims this is TV magic. Outside, Asher and Whitney fight over whether this betrays the show they want to make. So let's talk about this opening real quick. I I thought it's really fascinating to have Nathan Fielder play a character who is objecting to how realistic something seems. (laughs) Because as I've just said, he is a character who has really toyed with notions of truth and whether what we're watching or not is real. Like he represents that everything on Nathan for you is true. But like, I think there's a lot of work that happens behind the scenes that is not revealed to the audience. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, here he is playing the quote unquote conscience of the show. And I just thought that was very ironic slash interesting slash weird. Um, But it's also a very effective first scene uh, that sets the stage for what I think is probably going to be a long running theme on the show. Not that we know what the show is going to be about, but like it's going to be about kind of, what is represented in the show that they're making in the curse and what is not. Um, but what do you think of this opening as an introduction to these characters, Patrick Lepic? I think it's really good. Um, and I actually think it feels pretty in line with Fielder's work, like more broadly, even though I'm not familiar with it on a personal level, I've read about it. I've talked to friends about it in which, you know, so much of this show, what uh, is set up in the opening moments is, well, what is reality, right? Like, you're filming stuff, you're talking to people, it's a reality show, it's a performance by the people within that reality show. Like there are so many layers of performance that people engage in just personally around the people that they interact with, their friends, their family, strangers. And then you add in the layer of doing that in front of a television show. I think it really feels like this show as set up in this in this scene is about the performances we do in reality and how we perform to other people. And so the little inkling we get in this opening exchange, I mean, we learn a lot more about these characters as the episode goes on, but arguably all the ingredients are right here for everyone. Like the three primary characters we are at least introduced to so far of Asher and Whitney and Dougie, like all of their actions that happen in these opening couple of minutes are just everything else are just riffs on these existing personality traits. And so it's really interesting to look back at that scene and think about that scene again, because you can really just, it's ground zero. Like whether it's something as simple as uh, Asher, like saying Jesus, and then like asking for that to be removed, Um, you know, Whitney, like having anxiety over how like their intentions are being portrayed Dougie, like, going for the spicy take. Right. Like, doesn't really care, like, how he gets there, but just trying to get the best shot or what he, what he his conception of the best shot is. It's a great opening segment because I think you sit in all of these characters. It's so efficient in setting mm-hmm. up all of these characters in a way that you can't really appreciate till later. But then looking back, it's like, wow, everything is right here for all the big questions the show wants to start unpacking later on. It's also... Uh, a show that really lets you appreciate how much wardrobe and hair and makeup can contribute to like setting, establishing a character. Um, mm-hmm. I noticed that Dougie, the director played by Benny Safdie, wears a ring on every single one of his fingers on his <laughs> left hand. And I just thought that was like a really nice 
touch that kind of gives you a sense of who that character is without calling any attention to it whatsoever. It's just like, hey, he's very flashy. He's very gaudy. Uh, he's very much like who you might think of as like a film student type, you know, who uh, is like really deep into his art and so on. So anyway, I agree with you. It's a really efficient scene, great scene that establishes a lot about who these people are. So as part of another shot for the show, uh, Asher and Whitney reveal to a local Espanola resident. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's where we are. Um, uh, that they're subsidizing part of her rent so she can afford to stay in her place and showcase one of their invisible homes, which are houses specifically designed to be carbon neutral. Reviewing footage from these shoots for the show's pilot, Dougie claims, quote, this shit sucks and tries to encourage Asher to create some artificial tension with his wife to spice up the shots. He turns them down and heads over to sit down for a local TV interview about their work and the show. The TV interview quickly becomes contentious as the interview pushes back on worries about gentrification and criticisms of how Whitney's parents, who own real estate, run their buildings. Winnie doesn't want to be associated with her parents, and Asher doesn't handle the criticism well, eventually threatening to ask the interviewer uncomfortable questions in return. The two panic over how poorly the interview went, worried it will become a PR disaster for the show. Let's talk a little bit about this, Patrick. I mean, this whole thing is like, this is when you really get a sense of like what the bulk of the show is going to be, which is yeah. painfully uncomfortable moments where these characters kind of Michael Scott style step into these situations that they're clearly not equipped to. Uh, uh, the whole inter- the TV interview I thought was a tour de force, uh, not only of direction, but of, of uh, Nathan Fielder's acting. Very strong, I thought. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of Nathan Fielder's performance outside of him playing, quote-unquote, himself in Nathan For You. Um, so I thought this was amazing. I also think it's really funny that Nathan Fielder's character refuses to generate fake tension with his wife when there's... Tons of tension he's creating left and right throughout the entire episode. You know, it's just, it's, he's like, no, I don't want, I don't want to do it. Meanwhile, he's like stepping on metaphorical landmines left and right of like angering people and pissing people off and stepping on like, you know, just doing really awful things um, or, or, or blundering into situations in an awful way. What do you think of this whole sequence, Patrick Lepic? I think it's great. And I think you, you, you touched on something that, you know, not to get too far ahead and where we're at in the episode, but you know, this, this idea that Dougie is trying to find like, like, this isn't like, this isn't enough. Like this isn't what the masses want. Like this isn't going to be the hit. Like let's like, you know, get something in there. And that explains like trying to get the, uh, you know, the mother to to cry a little more to try and get them to have some on-screen tension. And then the arc of the show is, is obviously, or at least this episode is Dougie realizing, Oh no, it's all here. Like, like you weirdos have enough going on between the two of you. You don't have to make anything up. And what's beautiful about this sequence in particular is this show luxur- luxuriates in long shots. Mm, and yeah. I would be so curious to find out how much is on the page and how much is improvisation. Um, Emma Stone it has a long comedic background. I would imagine she is used to like – feeling her way through like a shot um and like how much of these particular kind of performance ticks and like shuffling around like how much of that is like hey do this or is is that nathan and and emma uh like kind of working off one another regardless like their chemistry is just immediate like you cannot look away from these two and it's like really summed up in that scene the one moment i in that in that sequence in particular that i um had a lot of sympathy for was there's a moment where uh, Asher is trying to explain a concept and just sort of loses it and is trying to fumble their way back uh-huh. to it. 
And I'm sure uh, this has happened to you plenty of times, like over your years never. of podcasting. I, never, I, I, I've no, never no. lost my train of thought on this <laughs> podcast before. And it is one of the scariest things that can happen to you when you are talking, whether it's something live or like recorded and it's going to go out late. It's like you get through a thought and sometimes, and you'll never realize this, but this is the kind of a skill you pick up as a, like a professional talking to a mic person mm-hmm. is like, there are times where you lose your train of thought and you can just bullshit your way into another train of thought. Absolutely. And like, nobody knows they're like, Oh, I don't know where I was going with. That. Arguably. That's about ar- arguably that's 90% of this podcast. Arguably. It's, I mean, that's most podcast. Like you, you, <laughs> you're kind of fumbling your way through it. And so that in that moment I felt, I felt very seen. And then I was like, Oh, Oh God. Like I have been there before. Or like, I'm going to I'm going to say something. I'm, I, I feel really confident and I believe, Oh, no, I don't know how to say any of that. Uh, how do I say something else? And so, yeah, th- I, that moment was also uh, incredibly revealing about the themes I think this show is heading in, which are, like, liberal. I think this is going to end up being, like, a fairly <laughs> mean-spirited critique of, mm-hmm. like, why well, buy the Tesla? And I got the carbon-neutral house. And then I'm, you know, getting the organic foods, but I'm really upset about the chicken not coming with the penne. And like, I'm going to call and like get my money. You know what I mean? There's just, there's a lot of uh, certain style of person who styles himself a certain style of progressive and then how they actually operate their lives right. is fundamentally different than the values they espouse. And it really feels like a huge amount of this show is going to be, uh, I mean, they're ready for it. Like, they're ready for, oh, the G question, you know, like gentrification. You know, like, yeah. no, we're going to solve that by getting them a job at the coffee shop. You know, like, it reeks hollow to start with. Uh, and you get a lot of that in that in that interview scene. And also a glimpse is just how mean Asher can be when he feels cornered. And I suspect right. that will also be something we return to over the course of the, the show. There's something... Uh, particularly tragic about Nathan Fielder's depiction of Asher because they are self-aware enough to know that the interview went disastrously. You know, like it's not like they it's <laughs> yeah, not like yeah, they walked yeah. away and thought to themselves, "Wow, we crushed it. That was great." Um, so they have that awareness of that, but like they don't have the ability to stop it from going disastrously, which is just a really specially painful place to be. Uh, mm-hmm. And so. I like that part of it too because we've seen like interviews play out poorly in shows or te- movies before, and then the people are like, "Crushed it, high five, you know. But this one was, they know that they messed up, and uh, and it's painful to watch. So, anyway, Whitney comes up with a plan: convince the interviewer to drop the piece in exchange for salacious inter- information about one of Asher's previous jobs involving work at a casino. I'm just going to pause here for a moment, Patrick, and say. I actually don't think this is a terrible plan. Like, uh, and look, you have worked in journalism and the industry before. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've witnessed this kind of horse trading takes place, but I can tell you it takes place. Like, it takes place where somebody doesn't want to be depicted in a certain way, so they'll trade with the publication. Like, we'll give you this if you promise to not do this. That happens with. A significant regularity. Patrick, am I talking out of my butt here? I think that's true, right? No, I feel like that is more uh, prevalent probably in like the image-focused Hollywood, whereas like a lot of like the reporting I've done, like the closest I can say to engaging in something like that is less uh, 
forward over like trading. Like mm-hmm. you give me this, I won't do that. It's more like it, when I was like really doing a lot of like sort of scooping, a lot of it was like I had sources and I'd be taking information from those other sources and giving it to those other sources so they could feel like they were gossiping. And like the gossip led to other gossip mm. that got me to stories that I would write about. So it was less about like, hey, I've got this bad thing. Give me something good and I won't write about the bad thing as much as like gossip begets gossip. And I would well, have four well, or five it, different sources working off one another to get me towards interesting things to, to write and report about. To be fair, it's, you know, I, I, I have firsthand knowledge of situations in which this has occurred. And it's not like the, it's usually not the journalist like threatening. You know, it's, the journalist isn't like, hey, I have a terrible thing, so you better give me something worse or else. You know, yeah. it's never like that. It's more like the journalist says, oh, I have this damaging thing. And then the, the person or the corporation will then come back and say, hey, um, I would like you to not use that. Uh, how about if I give you this in exchange for you not using that? You're right. Like, it's, it's not the journalist like, extorting or blackmailing it's usually hey can we come to some agreement and then and that plays out that plays so anyway i just want to say it's not the most unreasonable plan in the world is it unethical potentially you could argue that um but respecting the tribe david i mean (laughs) come on what else can you expect from them (laughs) anyway i just wanted to you know we're going to talk about the ways in which it ends up being a bad plan but i didn't think the concept was like that horrible um at least if you're on Asher Whitney's side. If you're the journalist, you know, that you you have your own gods to answer to. Well, I, but I, I will say this this specific moment, this exchange, this – so, yeah, you were right, David. From an outsider's perspective, running the numbers. This does seem like potentially a way to deal with this issue. Absolutely. But at this point in the show, even as early as we are into it, yes. <laughs> the moment these sickos start talking about it, it's like – you're not going to pull like yeah. You're gr- not yeah. Gonna, good luck. Yeah. Good luck. You know, like that's that's sort of I think some of the like kind of sick joy you get yes, from the show, absolutely, especially yeah. early on, is like yeah. I guess that kind of makes sense, but <laughs> but there's no way it's going to go. Like, it's not going to go well. Like there's no, it's not going to go well. But I'm happy to sit back and watch and see what happens. <laughs> uh. Anyway, so uh, the two tr- the Asher and uh, Whitney try to convince themselves that the potential exchange is not about throwing the Pueblo tribe who ran the casino under the bus and is strictly about the local regulatory agency's corrupt practices. <laughs> While waiting for the interviewer to become available, Dougie convinces Asher to buy some drinks a local kid is selling in the parking lot. Asher, however, only has a $100 bill. He gives the child $100, then asks for it back. When she won't give it back, he steals it back and she curses him. Asher tries to retrieve some smaller bills from a local ATM, but the child and her family are no longer there. Later, Asher meets up with the interviewer, who is at least intrigued by what Asher's offering, while Dougie tries and fails to secretly record what Asher is up to. So many things going on in this whole sequence. I, I love them all. I thought it was all amazing. Uh, obviously, Asher, uh, Asher like asking for the $100 back. That's his original sin, of course. Uh, but even the whole exchange with the ATM guy and like, the ATM oh, guy asking so for the pen. So uncomfortable. <laughs> Patrick Klepek, if you were in that situation and some local was like, "Hey, it's okay, just tell me the ATM code. I'll I'll, I'll do it for you." Would you give your ATM code to some stranger? I think I'd probably give it to them and then do it like yeah. when he suggested. It was like just change the code. Like, yeah. like come on, like just I like, could give them the code and then call the bank and then change the code. But 
the ability for this show and what makes me so intrigued about what whatever comes next because I, I think it's incredibly hard to predict what the arc of this show is actually yes. going to be um is its ability to extract tension and anxiety and this also worries me because the show gives you no relief there is there is never mm-hmm. an exhale moment and i think mm-hmm. it's going to be a turnoff to some people like mm-hmm. as frequently in shows that are even dark comedies or meant to make you anxious are structured in a way to whether through comedic relief or other ways to like have a release valve mm-hmm. for the audience mm-hmm. and none such no such thing exists in the curse like you get moments where it's less anxious yeah. but it's still like, like there's always an undercut like yeah. an undercurrent yeah. of you you never feel feel comfortable and it's or, like, or this scene is just setting up the next thing that's gonna make me lose my mind basically right like what there, there's very little break i think you're right about that because it could yeah it could have just been he like he spent enough time walking around in the parking lot he asked dougie for some money and of course of course that asshole doesn't have any bills like of course he doesn't have any money like i don't carry cash bro like yeah. like like and it, he could have just gone into the atm and the, and the girl could just be gone but it they managed right. to still in this otherwise innocuous could have just been two lines on the page like oh he goes into the atm gets twenty dollars comes out is itself like a revealing in some ways empathy like because i think a lot of people even if you look at asher like what like why would you do any of this i do think as you as you posit the atm moment is one of those sort of universal like well okay like what would you do in, in that moment, if someone asked for your pin, and I hope the show is able to continue straddling that line where, as these characters probably become increasingly disconnected from our own reality in terms of actions you or I might take, having sort of these more human moments, which I actually do think is connected to like the the penny pasta thing later, is like, yeah, I've, I've done that shit. Like we've gotten our box of stuff, and like the broccoli's bad. Like I've called and complained like i wanted the broccoli to be good in the box so i enjoyed it because i felt it was a very human moment mm-hmm. in a show that otherwise i think is depicting like superhuman levels of anxiety that you may not be able to like especially relate to uh, as part of your daily life right you can relate to the atm moment more than you can relate to like physically grabbing a 100 dollars bill off a, out of a girl's hand you know yeah <laughs> yes. I, to its credit, you know the show does kind of set up that they might have money problems, uh, and so mm. that that might be why Asher's a little bit more like sensitive to losing a hundred dollars than he might otherwise be. But the whole sequence is great. For the record, if I was in that situation, I'd just say, uh, if I was in the situation of the ATM, I would just say, "No, thank you, sir. I'm not doing that." And then just take my card back and leave the premises. There's too much. Keep the curse. Keep There's... the curse. Could David? David is fine. Well, no, no, no. Curse. I also like, wouldn't. You know <laughs> I also wouldn't have, uh, but I wouldn't have taken the hundred dollars back from the girl either. Like that's okay, another. Fair. I would have never been in that situation. So <laughs> <laughs> there's no similarity of any kind between me and Asher in the show. I just want to point that out. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Uh, in the second half of the episode, oh, 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 and I also want to mention by the way, I love like um, the whole time he's having the conversation with the local reporter. You think to yourself that Dougie is recording it all, right? Because <laughs> yeah. he has like activated the mic pack. And then what he, Dougie is doing in the parking lot is I, my understanding is they're using a wireless mic pack to transmit 
um, to the sound guy. And so you need to be physically close enough to that to the f- human to be able to get the sound. So he's like, hey, we're walking, we're walking. Do you hear anything? Do you hear anything? And that's what he's checking to see if they're getting the transmission. Um, and uh, I was shocked to discover that Dougie did not re- like record him talking with the reporter because that was also arguably an equally incriminating conversation to the one he had earlier, right? It was also very painful and uncomfortable. Um, the guy just cannot have a normal combo with anyone is what I'm just <laughs> concluding no. about Nathan Fielder in general. So, yeah. <laughs> all right. In the second half of the episode, Asher and Whitney meet up with Whitney's parents, who she does not appear to have a contentious relationship with. As Whitney's father tosses a small carrot onto a nearby plate, we immediately cut to a foreboding shot of Asher's penis before the group sits down for dinner. Afterwards, Whitney's father expresses some skepticism about Whitney's and Asher's real estate plans before the two have the most awkward conversation ever filmed in the history of cinema about two men dealing with both uh, having small penises. You know, uh, there is a uh, very famous meme from Darth Marenghi's Dark Place. Have you heard of that show where that guy, Garth Marenghi's mm-hmm. Dark Place? Mm-hmm. And there's a very famous line that's become a meme where he says, I know writers who use subtext and they're all cowards. <laughs> yes, yes. I feel like this show was written by that caricature. <laughs> um, because, I, I don't know. This is the only part of the show that I was like, I didn't know how I felt about it because, um, first of all, uh, Nathan Fielder's character's penis is small in the in the world of the mm-hmm. show. I'll just say it looked like a perfectly fine size to me, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> but the second thing, but the second thing I'll say is like you don't need um, you don't need subtext uh, or, or sorry you don't need to make that like part of the text right like. It's already understood that he, this guy is like likely overcomp- uh, like overcompensating for a lot of things, um, and uh, I, I, all that stuff about uh, his penis size and his uh, their his like sexual relationship with his wife. It just felt to me like a hat on a hat, as it were. You know what I'm saying? What do you What do you think, Patrick Klepek? What was your reaction to this entire sequence of events? I don't. I mean, I don't know where to begin. Like the pissing in the garden, um, like the reveal. I, I, you know, real power. Real power st- move, by the way. Real power move. You no, know, to do it right in front of them, just inc- incredible. Maybe. <laughs> well, makes me to, question all gardens going forward. To do it at all. Um, do you do you remember that whole like? <laughs> do you remember that whole uh, sketch? Like, um, I think it's Matt Walsh did the uh, the sketch with the butt pennies. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh the, no, the ass pennies. That's one the of the ass pennies. Upright sketches. citizens, upright citizens mm-hmm. brigade. They did this sketch with the ass pennies. I think I brought it up before on decoding TV. But like how this guy uh, in the sketch, by you can Google it. It's online. He shoves pennies up his butt and then like distributes them to cashiers all around the the city. And that way, when he shakes someone's hand, he knows that there's a significant possibility that they've touched his ass pennies. Um, mm-hmm. The idea is that that gives you like some kind of upper hand in the meeting. You're like psychologically advantaged. Uh, and I feel like it's a similar dynamic where this guy who, according to him, has a small penis, like Whitney's dad, is like, hey, those tomatoes you're enjoying right now, I pissed on those. Like, I, <laughs> s- stuff that came out of me helped to make that. You know, like, 
mm-hmm. kind of basically I'm saying the the tomatoes are the ass pennies of the curse is what I'm saying. Okay, anyway. Uh yeah, well it's 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 also because we're we don't have the full picture of the parents yet, right? Like so the TV anchor describes some right. of the criticism in the community about the real estate holdings as the parents essentially being slumlords. I think is the like yeah. quote that is used. And here in the sequence we've got between Asher and Whitney and uh you know Whitney's parents is like I mean it's un- it's obviously played to great exaggeration for the sort of uncomfortable conversation between Asher and Whitney's father, but it's all a part of anyone that's like had a partner become part of their family. Like everyone has awkward, strange, trying to figure out where you sit with other people conversations when you're trying to overlap families, backgrounds, interests. And then this is just played to just like the, like the most like wild version of like what that uncomfortable conversation uh, could, could be about. And the kinds of things that, you know, uh, like partners of spouses don't talk about their parents usually. Like, look, you know, you have a kid. Like, we all know we're having sex, but like, we don't want to talk about it. We say we're trying. It's like that means we're having sex a lot, guys. <laughs> like all the all the time. Like, just really going at it so we can have one of those things they call a kid. And this just takes that little encapsulation of an idea. And it takes just the most horrifying version of like something we just don't talk about often as families when you like get together to have dinner. And so I, I didn't find it was like, here's what I worry. Uh, if you think that is hat on a hat, I worry about what you think about the rest of this show, not this episode, but where it's going, because I don't, I suspect that moment is not necessarily an outlier. I suspect mm-hmm. that is in kind with, how this show is going to handle its storytelling. It's like most exaggerated moments of like there, this, this show is always vibrating in anxiety. Like that's mm-hmm. the frequency it operates in. And then it's just sort of like ebbing and flowing uh, to different like intensities. And this is obviously a thing. Well, I don't know if this is the most intense part. The sex scene is, that's pretty intense. Later. Yeah, I mean, so um, let, but, uh... let, let, let's talk about that, right? On the way home, like, and the, the, the real, I think the real, violation that's occurring is not uh the dad bringing up a painful topic it's that like whitney has clearly shared this information with correct which is just which by the way we can just say that's a weird thing to do like that's it is it's weird to talk with your parents about your spouse's genitalia that's like a weird Hmm. most as far as i know most people don't do that patrick not a topic can can you can we confirm (laughs) i can confirm that's never you know, I have to talk. I have to check with my wife. Pretty sure. Pretty sure I can confidently say I don't think that is. At least I hope that's, not. That's weird, David, right? I don't want to ask. Thing. I don't want to ask that question because what? What if I give back a different answer? Yeah. What if I'm, I'm not introducing? There's no benefit that to asking that. Home. You can only get bad answers in response to you that can, question. You can only give bad answers. So I'm just going to confidently say we're good and not investigate any further. Yes. It's it's the when did you start beating your wife, you know, is is very similar to do you talk with your parents about my genitalia? Um, there's Ooh. no good answer to that question. Okay. On the way home, Asher tries to figure out how Whitney's parents know he has a small penis. We learn they're getting pressure to have children, but they're not trying at the moment. And furthermore, the reason they're not having sex more regularly is apparently because of Whitney, not Asher. The incident leads the two to have sex, an event that largely centers around the two role-playing Whitney having sex with someone else while Asher uses a vibrate on her, uh, vibrator on her and masturbates. 
so yeah, this is this is more of that hat on a hat stuff where it's like, I don't know. It's it's. I think we are meant to pity Asher because he has a small penis and he uh, doesn't have penetrative sex with his wife, and mm-hmm. um, it just felt like a little bit unnecessary and mean spirited in the show. Is all I'm saying. You know what I mean? Um, but maybe Asher's going to turn out to be an even bigger piece of shit than we know about from this episode and it will all feel justified in the end. But it did feel a little bit like, you know, if, Hey, if that's how they choose to get off, like who, who are we to judge? That was kind of my reaction to that a little bit, but when it goes on for so long, right? So it's, yeah. it's, 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 which is true of the entire show. Like it chooses a moment. Yes. And instead of cutting, yeah, you're there an extra 30, 60, 90 seconds. And it's, it's it's clearly created that way, shot that way, and then ultimately edited that way where like they find something and they press a nerve and they they're daring you to look away because we're, the show is not going to or by the time it it does look the show chooses to look away, it's cuz the show's done with it. They don't they're sort of indifferent to how you feel about like how long or how you felt during that moment. And so I am with you. I feel like there is a there's definitely a reading of that arc and I'll be disappointed if a significant amount of the show is an obsession over like small penis syndrome or however you want to like call like it, because again I do, I do feel like he can be a bad person without us doing something that is adjacent to like a fat phobic like a like a body image and the, the show does make a bot like a body image crack early on before we get to um the actual arc between Asher and Whitney's father. Mm-hmm. And she's like, there's better material here to mine about how Asher is most likely an enormous asshole than like teasing him right. through the, like having the audience feel like they're teasing him through the lens of the show because his wife doesn't feel like she can be pleasured by, by him. And there may be maybe other dynamics at play. And I'm, I guess I'm choosing to be more hopeful yeah, about yeah. where the show is going Whereas, so I, I think I I may end up agreeing with you on like where this stuff lands. Yeah. If this is where if the show continues to resort to these sorts of tactics, even if it's not this specific topic, but like in that same realm. But I'm hoping like because so much of the rest of the show suggests that it doesn't have to overly harp on something like this. That that it just feels kind of low brow compared to the like very high brow like sort of criticism the show is engaging with in terms of reality and politics and you know how we present ourselves there's so much it can do it'd be a bummer if it's like <laughs> but the, his dick's really small right like right. you know so hopefully that's not uh, we i think we are meant to find him the object of derision and you know to and to pity him or to understand yes. that like this is not necessarily how he'd want this sex scene to play out if it was up to him you know like um well no because you see him in the scene like trying in the role play trying to right get himself get, in, get in there, the yeah. action and uh and and he is denied you know, yeah. the story does not allow for it as as the yeah. two of them are are playing it out so I, you're definitely meant to view him as a pathetic figure that exactly. is 100% and and i don't know that it necessarily leaves you with thinking whitney is a heroic figure but there is an imbalance between these two characters at this stage in the show yeah yeah and i think you also get the sense that like uh, maybe one of the reasons why Whitney is with this person is because 
you know, because Whitney is obviously a very beautiful woman who has what seem to be quite successful parents. Uh, and maybe one of the reasons she's with someone like Asher is because he's one of the only people that she can get to go along with this quest, this quixotic journey that she's on, you know, to rehab these homes under the guise of we're improving everyone's lives. Um, so we'll see how that plays out. Uh, but yeah, I think you're, I think you're concerned. It's, it's great to call it a concern because the thing is everything else in the show is so masterful. Like everything else in the show right. is so well done. It just we- feels like a weirdly, uh, a weird cheap shot to do, do something like what it seems to be doing with. It does feel yeah. cheap compared to, yeah, everything else that's in the show. Yeah. And, uh, in, you know, if you want to be like deeply cynical, it's like, well, how do you get, what are the headlines all going to be? Like, right. As soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, I know how every blog is going <laughs> to write about this. And right. I, you know, I, in a text to you before you had watched it, I, I made a cherry tomato, like joke, like it's like, it's, it was funny. Like it, I did genuinely laugh in my uncomfortableness, but I also agree that it's cheap can be mean spirited. And I think we're in agreement that we hope that's not reflective of. Yeah. Totality of the style of humor, and I don't think I don't think it will be. But um, it, it is an amazing speech that Whitney's dad gives to Asher, though, about the tomatoes, and with like some sinister undertones about like you know. <laughs> but when you put them, but when you put the tomatoes behind between two pieces of bread, it tastes just the same, baby. And it's like, oh my God. it's all the same in the dark, baby. You know, it's like okay. Ah. Um, <sighs> <sighs> Oh, and I have to, I like to put a pin on this particular sequence. Yeah. Um, I, my wife has not watched any Nathan Fielder. And so yeah. I, she's like, should we watch the show together? I was like, uh, let me watch the first episode. And I have a good sense of your taste. And I don't, I think I'm going to watch a couple more episodes before I tell her whether to like mm-hmm. catch up and then we'll watch mm-hmm. it together. But that's all to say when, she, uh, I was watching the end of uh, this came out on a Friday. And so I was watching it in kind of spurts while like bedtime was happening with the kids. And sometimes on Fridays we let them fall asleep in our bed and then we move them later because mm-hmm. we can do the kids at the same time. They fall asleep way quicker when it's not their bed. Cause they find ways to want to stay up and our bed feels like a treat. And so anyway, my wife was taking care of that. And I was like, well, I'll try and watch another 10 minutes of the show. I got like an extremely angry text. Like what the, fuck are you watching because like the sex scene which is really loud and like i was like trying jamming on like the volume button to turn turn it down thinking like well it's got to be over soon right and she was like no no it's not and she's like well the kids don't know what I, they heard but turn this shit off I was like, okay okay i watched that monster verse show in, instead <laughs> that, is, that is incredible yep, amazing yep, look like I'm at, you know, I'm I'm uh, willingly corrupting my kids through Five Nights at Freddy's, unwillingly corrupting my children through um, Nathan Fielder's sex acts being heard across the room. Um, so you know, a lot going on in my household. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's also interesting timing is I watched Poor Things, the new Yorgos Lanthimos movie this last week, um, in which Emma Stone also has a lot of sex. Um, mm, so good for her. It's be, just been a really graphic week for watching Emma Stone <laughs> having sex and things. Um, so anyway, but I, I, I actually like, you know, support, like, uh, she is ex- enormously talented artist who's like, 
kind of carving her way through her career right now. And I, I really support all the bold choices she's making. You know, like it's not, it's not obvious that this is something that a person would do uh, at her stage in her career. She just won best actress, you know, like she could do mm-hmm. anything basically. And she's choosing to do stuff that's really risky and vulnerable. And I really support that. So um, later, while reviewing footage for the show with Dougie, the three argue over the show's tone, and Dougie reveals one of his proudest productions was a dating reality show involving a burn victim. We we have to pause here for a moment, Patrick, because <sighs> this is incredible. Um, let me tell you why it's incredible. First of all, I think this is a combination of several of like several things, right? So like back in the early nineties, there. Um, were like Fox reality shows that were just like awful and that were extremely similar to what you see here where it's like the guy's face is covered. You don't know who he is. Um, and then at the end it's revealed. I think it was like, I want to say it was like, was it Joe millionaire or something like that? But anyway, Fox had shows where they would cover the guy's face and it would be very similar to what you see here. But what's also amazing about the fake show that is depicted is it is clearly in my opinion, taking aim at modern Netflix reality shows like Love is Blind. So in Love is Blind, the idea is, hey, we're going to have you talk to each other without seeing each other and then decide whether you're going to get married. Uh, but then, So that's like, oh, that's interesting. Like, what, what is a relationship if you don't have looks to factor in? Really ripe territory to mine there. Uh, but... Then what happens in the show is literally everyone is conventionally attractive, so it's like, oh, well, then it doesn't really <laughs> doesn't really matter. Like, why why, right. why the whole rigmarole on the premise? And um, many people have thought to themselves, what if the person was revealed and they're not conventionally attractive? What if there's mm-hmm. something not necessarily quote unquote wrong with them, but just like they weren't what a they don't look like a model, basically? Yeah. What w- what would the person's reaction be? Many people have mused. This show that Benny Safdie's character made gives you that uh, that catharsis, and also the uh, the song that they play is extremely similar to what they do on Love Is Blind. Like on Love Is Blind, it'll be like we're talking and we're falling in love, and I'll be like, you know, I just don't know if I can make this happen. And then I don't know if I can get married to you. And then a song will start playing that's like, he just doesn't know if he can get married <laughs> to you. You know, like, it'll be like really on the nose. And so when this show started playing like this, uh, the fire burns on, you know, like that's what <laughs> oh it was. Oh, God. That it, really put it over the top for me. That, yeah. I mean, it would have been a great satire, <laughs> like, anyway but yeah. every time that and the song kept playing but, over and but, like, but that's the thing is revisiting it, it is not the, the thing is i don't think it's over the top it is really close to okay. what these netflix shows have as their music i'm just, okay. I'm just you have not watched a lot of love is blind but if you had you'd know oh that's clearly just like a love is blind and i'm not saying love is You're blind not even necessarily saying it's satire yeah it's maybe I'm, a couple of steps ahead of where these shows it, are going it's anyway bare, it's barely satire is what i'm saying it's barely <laughs> satire so anyway uh okay so uh uh anyway uh whitney witnesses a snippet of footage from asher talking to a child in the parking lot she then demands to see all the footage horrified again she commands asher to track down the child at a local shelter and give her the hundred dollars he's unsuccessful and eventually just gives some cash to a random unhoused woman caring for a child who's living in a nearby tent 
When Asher returns, he tells Whitney he found the girl and the family, gave them the money. It appears that Dougie is overseeing the exchange, and Asher claims the curse has been lifted. But the episode ends with Asher uncomfortably sitting with a lie he just told while Whitney records a voiceover. In the final moments, it appears Asher realizes Dougie is recording. And by the way, the, the earlier point about Dougie is overseeing the exchange, there's a really incredible moment in the episode where uh, Asher and Whitney's exchange is being viewed through a peephole, and you think mm-hmm. it's Dougie watching it. But in fact, it's some other unknown party that's across the hall from them. Oh, I didn't put that yeah. together. That I was my interpretation. Is the whole time you're thinking, oh, it's Dougie that's witnessing this. But then the camera pulls out back from a peephole. It's actually a really amazing moment. And you realize, oh, Dougie is actually across the hall. And somebody else is witnessing this entire exchange. Who, who we don't know who they are yet. So Ooh. TBD on what, what's going on there. Intriguing. All right. Any thoughts on this whole final sequence? Asher going to find the girl and lying about the whole thing? You know, like, what'd you think? Yeah, I, uh, Well, I, I think I missed up on, I understand Whitney's anger. I don't know. Like, it seems to be like 11 o'clock at night. And it's like, I don't know. Just go walk the streets until you find like this unhoused family and uh, and give them some money. Like, I, it seems like look, the best laid plans for these two is going to end in disaster. This one seems especially poorly laid ahead of the the execution, and so uh, not shocked that old Asher wasn't able to step up to the plate on this one. Um, I did think there. I'll be very curious to see where the show keeps plucking at this but again as i was saying earlier i i'm picking up on a theme in the show in which it's like the way liberals slash progressives present themselves versus like their actual mm-hmm. like personal values and how they act in their lives there's a very telling exchange in the hallway between the two of them where uh asher describes the family he's looking for as homeless she says unhoused and he goes right unhoused and i believe like Using language like that is important. I think language has a lot of power, but there is a strain of a certain type of liberal who's like, it's a lot of language policing without actually adopting policies in your life. So it's like, you'll point out like we use on housing now, not homeless, but like, you're not going to help the person. Well, yeah, like, he, he, you know, he, he goes to the shelter and they're like, Hey, we could, we're short staffed and we could always use donations. And you know, Nathan Fielder, does, as far as we can see, he doesn't do anything to help them. I don't think, I don't recall. So, Right. And like the show has revisited a version of this over and over again that I have to imagine it's going to be a big theme of the show. And I think there's just, there's a ton there for them to play with. Like if that is one of the strains of satire uh, that they're going to play with. I, I agree. I, I agree. It's right. Really it's right. It's really yeah. right. Like, cause they, I, you know, yes, these characters are, can feel a little, uh, cartoonish, but uh, at times in terms of kind of the exaggerated circumstances they find themselves in. But I think you're going to like, it's moments like that where it's like, oh, I think there's gonna be a lot to relate to uh, in terms of, well, I've seen that before. And like, I've seen how that plays out, whether it's online or in your personal life. And so I found that exchange really telling. And I'm, I'm curious to see where that part goes uh, in the future. Cause I get the sense that that's a lot of Whitney, like Asher's along for like, he'll use the right language. He can say the right sentences. I don't really think he believes mm-hmm. any of this crap. Yeah. Um, whereas Whitney, I think is like a true believer, but probably is not like putting her money where her mouth is. Right. Um, yeah. And so uh, that tension between the two of them and their values versus their presentation of their values. 
I, I expect to be a really interesting theme in the show going forward. Agreed. A couple of other things to point out about the end of this episode. But before we wrap up, Patrick Klepek, why don't you share where people can find more of your work on the internet this week? Uh, you can find me across most social platforms uh, at Patrick Klepek. Uh, you can listen to me talk about video games, sports, and other things over at Remap Radio on all podcasts and platforms. And I've got my parenting and gaming newsletter uh, over at crossplay.news. And if you want to find more episodes of this podcast, podcast.decodingtv.com. Email us at decodingtv at gmail.com. Let us know what you thought of the curse. We're going to be covering the show for the next eight weeks. We'd love to hear people's reactions. I'd uh, love to read the reactions on the air. And uh, I think that's one of the pleasures of being able to, to cover a show like this. So, f- again, feel free to email us at decodingtv at gmail.com or comment at decodingtv.com. We can get your messages either way. Uh, and, uh, yeah, uh, find decoding tv if you're watching this on youtube find decoding tv wherever you get all of your podcasts and if you're listening to this you can watch these conversations at youtube.com slash decoding tv couple last things i want to mention patrick klepek about this whole sequence there is this weird scene where dougie is kind of sharing how cool he thinks whitney is uh that i thought was very odd and kind of uh, again also a little bit sinister because early on we have seen dougie kind of be frustrated or refer to the wife character very derogatorily so Mm -hmm. i think he's clearly faking he's pretending he likes her to what end unclear like is he trying to sleep with her is he just trying to you know pave the path for himself to like professionally like i don't i don't know what's going on there um but it felt very dark and i think she seemed a little bit rattled by it as well um she has this look on her face is very ambiguous at the end of the episode uh so wanted to call that out do you have any any read on that patrick Lepic? the one so this is a concern i have about the show and how cartoonish it could get going forward mm-hmm. like dougie is just very clearly from the jump like a piece of shit yeah like, the show's not hiding it <laughs> right. you know what i mean it's not like a long play like well like you know he's got some good no, like he's all bad and mm. if that's if this character is acting at this level yeah in the first at episode. the beginning right in the beginning i do worry like at what point does it become patently unbelievable to continue associating like this show is like being made for hgtv right like I, I don't know the exact details of what sort of deal they've signed but like they've talked to, like it's not like they're making a pilot and then going to sell it like they're working with hgtv to make this show and at some point like this guy is such a clearly catastrophic to be working with wouldn't you ditch him and like try and find a different producer well it's, it seems show? like asher and dougie have a pre-existing relationship they do right? yeah so yes. i think that's yes. a big part of it um and also i think we'll probably find out more about dougie as the show goes on you know that like makes it clear like why he's behaving the way he's behaving um maybe he he's at the the millionaire the, sorry the the burn victim show didn't work out so he's at the end of his rope and this is his last chance of redemption you know who knows yeah um the other thing I'll say is just ironically, I think this show really gives you a sense of how hard it is to make things. You know, like the, uh, Dougie is going and he's they've got, captured a lot of the footage and they're filming. And, you know, you, you go into this thing with good intentions of, hey, we're trying to make a show about sustainable living. And you see you, Dougie's right. Like a lot of the show footage does look really boring, you know, and. Uh, and it's hard to make something good and, and they've clearly invested all their time into it. But yeah, I, I just was appreciative of all the behind the scenes of like, 
it's hard to make something. It's hard to capture something and then make people care about it. Uh, and ironically, that's something the show gave me an appreciation for. One other well, not thing only that yeah. I think, uh, just to that point, uh, I'll let you finish is that yeah. it, I think, and you've probably experienced this as well. You have an idea and it's your idea and you're yeah. very excited about yeah. it and it's just in front of you. Yeah. And nothing has corrupted it. And then every moment that circle widens to, yeah. it could be as like a service you use online. It could be a person you do a thing with, like. It's not that it all inherently corrupts, but it changes. And so obviously the show plays that to an exaggerated degree. But as like someone that's worked in creative spaces, like I certainly understand watching this in real time where it's like the moment like all of a sudden all these other people are involved, you can only grasp onto so much to like ground it into why you did the thing in the first place. And you can get to the end of a project like that and go, well, we lost everything that we were trying to maintain in the first place because all of a sudden right. it's in the hands the ship, of so the many ship of people. Theseus of projects, right? Yes. Like yes. you, parts of it are peeled away until the thing is completely unrecognizable. Yeah. I will also say that one of my favorite cuts in the, in the episode, there are a lot of great filmmaking in the episode, but one of my favorite cuts is the cut from the sex scene to the footage from the HGTV show was really incredible. Like that was a, wild cut (laughs) like like if you haven't seen the show basically you know nathan fielder is or you know uh uh, asher is pleasuring whitney with a vibrator and she is like reaching climax and then they cut to basically the footage they've captured for the hgtv show and i one thing i appreciate about cuts like that is i think it's just to show a couple things first of all there is a massive level of artifice in anything that's you see on TV, uh, including reality TV especially. And also that reality television can't possibly co- convey the wholeness of a person, you know? Uh, that these people people have complex lives, including sex lives. And those are just things we just never have access to. Um, just some deep thoughts about the curse episode one, Patrick Lepic. All right. Any, anything else you want to say before we wrap up today, Patrick? No, I, I don't know where this show is going. Yeah, uh, I'll just I'll just reiterate what I said at the top. But I'm, I'm really excited to see where this could go. I think there's like a million different directions these characters could spiral in a, a thousand different ways. And you know, similar when you and I were talking about like our favorite parts of like where Loki ended up was to have a show in front of you. We're like, all right, I like all these base pieces. Like, surprise me. And I, I think this is going, like, again, regardless how we feel about it at the end, I, I think the show is going to surprise me. <laughs> and that's re- that's really exciting. Like, I have no yeah. idea what the next image is going to be, right? Like, the cut like the cut you just talked about is indicative of the show's, I think it has broadly a similar tone. So I don't think it's, like, necessarily tonally shifting all the time. But it's just, I just don't know where it's going next. And so I couldn't, I wouldn't dare posit the arc of this, this like the upcoming episodes. And that's a really cool place to be with the show where I just like, I have literally no idea what you're going to do with all these, all the pieces you've, you've laid out. And like, given the creative talent involved, it's like the idea that they wanted to tell it, like you could have done a show. Like this premise could have lended itself to a film if they wanted to, like Mm. there's a version of like these pieces that could just be a, a small independent, like, you know, uh, a film. But it's a TV show. That's so much time. What are you going to do with that time? And like, yeah. that's what I'm really excited to see what they fill it with. I'm also going to make a prediction. Uh, not very many people are talking about the show right now, 
Like, mm-hmm. I don't see that much chatter. There's not that many reviews. We're one of the few people that are covering it weekly. Uh, this is a show, I'm going to make a prediction. We'll see if it comes up being true. This is a show that's going to pick up a ton of steam as it goes on to the I point agree. where like the finale will be like the shocking thing that everyone discusses, um, online on threads or X or whatever. Like I, that's my guess is it's going to start small, but the, it is a really good decision to do episodic format for this and, uh, like release schedule. And so. We'll see. We'll see what ends up being true. Either way, we'll be here talking about it here on Decoding TV. Uh, This has been so much fun. He is Patrick Klepek. I'm David Chen. Thanks for listening or watching. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.